this week on the Lectures in History podcast, a lesson on American cults. Santa Clara Religious Studies professor Jim Bennett takes students through the formation of cults and the history of some of the most notorious in American history. Class starts right after this. I'm Juan, and I'm part of the team that produces C-SPAN podcasts. As a listener, you can help us continue to produce our quality podcasts about history, books, and current events with a tax-deductible contribution to C-SPAN's nonprofit operations. Visit cspan.org slash donate to learn more. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the next to last class in uh, Inventing Religion in America. And we are finishing up our conversation about the Branch Davidians um, and in particular using uh, Eugene Gallagher and, and James Tabor's book, Why Waco, to, to shape our conversation. Um, as I think I explained at the beginning of the course, or at least the beginning of this, this section, since this is one of the, the three movements that we're spending a lot of time on, the reason that I like to end with the Branch Davidians um, and to end with this particular text to talk about them is because it seems to really bring together a lot of the big themes that we've been talking about over the course of the quarter. So on the one hand, we are finishing up our conversation about the Branch Davidians, but on the other hand, we're really using the entire course as a text uh, to lift up these, these points. So Here's the agenda for today. Um, I want to spend some time talking about the cult perspective, which really is the anti-cult perspective, and then apply that and talk about how that shaped the events that took place uh, in Waco with the Branch Davidians in 1993, and then think through some of the consequences and implications of what happened there and then of, of the way that the word cult has been applied in that context um, and, and others. So, so that's, that's roughly the, the agenda for today. I want to start, since this is sort of reflecting back on the course, to one of our first discussions when we were talking about what the word cult means, right? And you actually wrote definitions of that. So um, let's kind of refresh our memories and think about what are the popular connotations of the word cult that operate in our culture now? When, when we say the word cult or we hear the word cult, what are the things that immediately jump to mind? Just shout them out. Small. Exclusive. What else? Unorthodox. Fanatical devotion. Now we're getting going. What else? Charismatic leader, seclusion, seclusion. controlling, controlling. Maybe violent, violent. Brainwashing. brainwashing. Okay, yeah, lots of really good, happy, positive thoughts that makes everyone want to be a part of a cult, right? I mean, so this this is the sort of dominant, popular framework, the common framework that when we hear the word cult, these are the sorts of things that we think about. And, and what we want to do today is think a bit, little bit about why that is the case and what are the ramifications uh, of that sort of thinking uh, of the word cult. Um, this, of course, has a long history uh, in religion in the United States um, and even before that. So even though we have been focusing in the last few weeks, particularly on the way that word has functioned in relationship to mid to late 20th century movements like 
the People's Temple, like Scientology, like the Branch Davidians. That word has a longer history in the United States. It shows up in newspapers here in California in the late 19th century. Um, And certainly those connotations, those ideas, go way back in the history of religion in the United States. So I've thrown up here to refresh our memory the groups that we've looked at over the course of this quarter. And where, thinking about those terms that we just shouted out, where have we seen that sort of thinking and how have we seen that sort of thinking applied to some of the groups that we have looked at this quarter? Can you think of any examples of sort of those negative descriptions or impressions of these groups? Yeah. Yeah. A charismatic leader of the movement. So, where, like, what what movements have we seen that in? Um, definitely Scientology. You could argue Mormonism too. Uh, okay. Of Islam. Uh, People's Temple. Basically, I say the majority. Of that. Yeah, yeah. So that we we see this, and, and we have certainly structured our conversations of these religious movements, haven't we, around the leaders, um, and that that they're central to that. So that sort of without necessarily casting them in a negative light, the, the bigger-than-life kind of role of, of these leaders is important. Yeah, Evan. Definitely casting it in a negative light, then, with the People's Temple and a lot of the things we spoke of. Violence with the, the murder of Representative Ryan, um, isolation in Guyana, and just the whole mass suicide part. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, in a lot of ways, the People's Temple and what happens in Guyana and Jonestown is, becomes the epitome of, of these characteristics of what a cult is. And a little bit later, I want to come back and think about how that plays out in relationship uh, to the Branch Davidians. Can you think of other sort of negative views about these groups um, that have emerged or the sorts of things that they're doing? Yeah. Uh, the argument could be made in Scientology and kind of the aspect, I don't like not using the word brainwashing, but similar connotation to it in the sense of kind of um, like reshaping the way you're thinking to fit a certain like way, maybe not reshaping, but believing in a certain way of thinking or ideas that follow along a lot of Scientology's mission. Yeah, so some modifying ways of thinking is central to, to the auditing process in Scientology, and that's sometimes cast in this language of brainwashing, right? Um, Another thing about cults that often comes up, it didn't happen to come up in our quick brainstorming today, but is the relationship to money. And and we talked about how with Scientology, there's a lot of skepticism and criticism about how it comes across as a fee-for-service sort of organization, right? What about those early 19th century groups, Mormonism, Shakers, Oneidas? What were some of the concerns or criticisms of them? So for, uh, I think, a lot of them, there was this element of them being so far removed from what was Orthodox Christianity in America at the time. A lot of them were based around it, but made changes that the rest of the religious community kind of shunned. Okay. All right. So there's that unorthodox piece there. And what in particular about those groups was, was unorthodox? Um, I think one could be like unique sexual practices amongst a good Yeah, yeah, unique sexual, marital, family relationships, right? So polygamy with Mormonism, celibacy with Shaker, 
and um, what do we call the Oneida community, right? Complex marriage, right? Where everybody is married to every, everybody else. So, so sex, marriage, family, this is another one of these characteristics often associated with the word cult. Okay, we could go on for a whole class doing that, but just to remind ourselves that these sort of uh, connotations about new religious movements go way back in our nation's religious history, well before the Branch Davidians, um, and certainly well before uh, even even Jonestown. Okay, so um, let's think a little bit more then about when we bring together these various connotations of the word cult, what, what is the picture that is emerging? What is, what is the cult perspective that that word offers us? Um, and at a, at a base level, um, you know, it's a way to other, to distance, to marginalize people, right? Those people are not like us. Those people, those religions, are not normal. Maybe they're not even really religion. Right, um, and again, those are the sorts of accusations that were made of these groups. Right, all all of these groups um, uh, were accused of being that sort of thing. So, uh, a scholar of new religious movements, one of the real sort of founders of this field of scholarship, defined a cult as a religion I don't like. That that's his definition of the cult of a cult, and he says he's only partially facetious. When he says that, right? You know, my religion is a church, your religion is a cult, if, if I don't like it. Um, it's always bad, isn't it, right? It always has those negative uh, uh, connotations in such a way that it kind of focuses like, um, you know, I'm trying to come up with a good analogy of this, so if, you, if, if, if something jumps to mind, let me know. But it's, it's like a lens that focuses things so that we only see them in a certain light. So I don't know, maybe it's a certain tint of sunglasses is a better analogy, right? So that it's very hard to escape those negative associations and those negative connotations once that word is in play. Right? It's very hard to, to, to get past that. It, it's so pervasive. Um, and it's, it's absolute. Right? It's an either-or sort of word. Right? There's, there's, there's not a middle ground. Right? Because when we're trying to make ourselves feel good about how we're not like them, how we're not like the People's Temple, for example, and in, in going to do what happened there, right? there cannot be middle ground. There cannot be gray area in between. There needs to be a firm barrier, doesn't there, so that we know which side of that line that we're on. Um, And another thing that it does, uh, I think that we've seen, is it really homogenizes, it simplifies, it makes everything uniform, right? There is a cult, and all cults are the same. We know what they're like. Charismatic leaders, sex, money, manipulation, brainwashing, mind control, right? That whole mantra, it's very easy uh, for us to call that up. And so any group that gets labeled a cult, right, automatically becomes associated with all of those attributes, right? So the absolute worst attributes associated with a group that is identified as a cult then become the attributes of every group for which the name of cult is used. And there are a lot 
you know, if you were to do a search of newspapers, even just in the 20th century or late 20th century, there would be hundreds or even thousands of groups that at one point or another have been labeled by somebody as a cult without any further definition of what that meant, right? Just an assumption in a newspaper article or a news program or something like that, that when we say the word cult, we know what that means, right? So, so it is this powerful thing that assumes, you know, so, so a cult, the language of cult homogenizes and makes uniform all the groups being defined as a cult. But the opposite is true as well. Right? The word cult depends on a comparison to the normal, the not cult. Right? And so it often uh, assumes that you know, this homogenous, unified, normal religion over and against which a cult is compared. Right? So in some ways, it's doing the same thing uh, on, on both sides. Um, and it is, you know, when we, we did our definitions of cult, you remember that in the first week, right? We have 26 students, and we had probably 35 different definitions of cult just in one day, right? So there's actually, when you start pressing people, not always strong agreement on that, um, or there is intentional vagueness of it, right? It's hard to, and people are reluctant, to pin down exactly what they mean um, when they use the word cult. Um, and most of all, I think a cult uh, label, what it does is it, um, it makes us lazy in that analysis, Right, Because what it says is you know everything that you need to know about this group or this person. right? Back to that list of things that we've ticked off. And so you don't need to make the effort to humanize the people who belong to a group. You don't need to make the effort to figure out what do they actually believe? How do they actually behave? Who are they as fellow human beings? Right? The word cult puts up that hard and fast barrier that stops us from crossing over that line. Um, and so that becomes problematic and sort of uh, a, a challenge to the study of religion, right? Because that, that's not the way that we do religion, right? That's, that's not where we want to stop. That's exactly um, uh, what, what we're about doing in, in religious studies and looking at religious history. So... Um, I want to pull a couple of lines from the section that we read uh, from Tabor and Gallagher in the Y. Waco book, where they're really doing this examination of, of the Branch Davidians as a case study of the word cult. They describe the word as polemical, not descriptive. Right, So that, that, that fits that summary, I think. That it reveals as much about outside observers as it does to the movement being described. Right? So that when someone uses the word cult, they're actually revealing more about themselves and how they think about things than they are the group that they're describing and how it functions and how it thinks about things. And so they conclude that the use of the word cult is a choice of perspective and not a description of fact. But we don't think about that that way, right? I think in popular culture, there is an assumption that, in fact, we all know what the word cult means and that it is descriptive um, and that it, did, it, it is helpful. Okay, so that's, that's the word cult. Um, 
Now, the dominant use of that or um, the, the adoption of that use of the word and those sorts of meanings of the word cult is what the anti-cult movement does. Right? So basically, the anti-cult movement, which really emerges in the early 1970s and, and goes through the mid to late 1990s, um, is a somewhat loose organization of folks who are basically presenting this cult perspective as the way to understand what we've been calling new religious movements. So in some ways, when I say the anti-cult perspective and the cult perspective, I'm talking about the same thing. The the anti-cult movement is just sort of leveraging or weaponizing that that sort of language. Um, And they have been quite successful in doing that. In making that view of cults the dominant perspective, one of the reasons that we all share that is because of the success of the anti-cult movement, um, which they will describe as this pervasive, destructive, dangerous influence that is a threat to all of American society. And so it needs to be dealt with and it needs to be stopped. Now, this a movement emerges in Southern California in the 1970s by some parents who child, whose children joined some of these new religious movements emerging in the 60s and 70s, um, and they were distressed that their, their college age and young adult children were dropping out of college, that they were leaving their sort of successful careers as nurses and business people and teachers and so forth to go live on a commune under a charismatic leader with alternative marriage and sexual and family relationships. And this is not what their kids were supposed to do, right? Like good middle-class white families. And so they began to cooperate and find ways to get these adult children out of groups. And that often involves literally kidnapping or removing them against them their will and trying to convince them to leave the group in a process that they called deprogramming. All right. But this, this is the, the origins of the movement that will come to so influence what happens uh, in, in the Branch Davidians. So for those of us in California, it, it is a, a homegrown movement. Right? As those parent groups began to connect with each other, um, they began to be a little bit more organized and to offer... Programs, educational programs to schools, colleges, universities, law enforcement agencies, parent groups um, to, to get out the message about how dangerous cults were, right? And notice how they're using that language as this uniform, homogenizing thing. They're not saying we're talking about how dangerous the X, Y, Z movements are, just that cults are. Right, so you see that that uniformity thing. Uh, they start to establish themselves as a resource, as experts on the topic. If you want to know about cults, contact us, and we will give you information about this dangerous trend uh, taking place in the United States. They became uh, supporters and referral services for people who did that deprogramming, that sort of kidnapping and removing uh, folks. Um, and they got to the point uh, where at a couple of moments in time, they're even advocating for legislative he- hearings and for changes in laws that would restrict 
the ability of the groups that they called cults to function. None of those laws ever passed, but there were a number of hearings held uh, in, in various states around the country. So, so that's, that's what they're doing. Now, it turns out the anti-cult movement is not very big relative to the size of the nation, right? It's mostly made up of family members of people who were in these sorts of groups and of people who had been a part of them and left, right? Those are the two groups of people that were really opposed to, to cults. Um, and so they really form um, the core of, of, of the cult an anti-cult network. Um, and much like the word cult does, right, they're using language to evoke passion and emotion um, rather than fact and, and objectivity um, to, to whip up uh, concern about them. Um, and central to this rhetoric of the anti-cult movement and the cult language suggests is this notion of brainwashing and mind control, right? That is, so you're, if you're a parent... How do you explain that all your efforts to provide for your children and give them a good education and every opportunity, how come then they left all that and ran off and joined one of these groups? Right? So what brainwashing does, one of these groups whose beliefs and practices are just incomprehensible, why would everyone, anyone join that? Right? And brainwashing and mind control becomes the explanatory mechanism for that. Well, they couldn't help it. They were poor, passive, helpless victims to the mind control and brainwashing of the charismatic leader. And that's why they joined. So so mind control and brainwashing become this way to explain how these groups recruit members and how they retain them. Right? And notice then what that does is that alleviates blame or responsibility for the families and for the individuals who join, right? Because they were acted upon um, by this sort of irresistible power and the use of mind control um, uh, of, of, uh, of these religious movements. Now, that raises questions, doesn't it? Because very few people actually join these sorts of movements. So if everybody is vulnerable... Right. As these anti-cult movement groups suggested, you know, these the parents would write, you know, it happened to me. It can happen to you. Anyone is vulnerable to this. But if that's true, why did so few people actually join? And why did most people who join end up leaving entirely on their own? Right. So there's this disconnect between that explanation and what actually happens. Um, But it is worth noting that despite the small number of people who actually have a personal experience with one of these new religious movements, either themselves or an immediate family member, the thinking and the movement actually has a pretty sizable influence, right? Because we all know what a cult is, right? And that's a large part, not exclusively, but largely the work of the anti-cult movement to um, spread and, and pro, uh, promulgate this notion um, of what a cult is and the danger uh, that they present. Um, okay, another way that um, the anti-cult movement frames um, what it means is they, they try to play off of a um, sort of, you know, 
God, nation, and apple pie, kind of what are understood to be, you know, sort of fundamental American values, right? So one of those is freedom. So the anti-cult perspective says that cults deny people's freedom because of that mind control brainwashing thing, right? Those people who are supposedly affected by that are being denied their freedom to choose, which is why you have to deprogram them and forcibly remove them so that they can have their freedom restored and choose to leave the movement. Many did not. A lot of people who were deprogrammed actually escaped and went right back to the community that they were a part of. But so there is this debate about freedom, right? Those who oppose the anti-cult movement say, you're the ones who are denying freedom, saying people shouldn't explore these opportunities, people shouldn't be free to decide them. The anti-cult movement on the other side is saying, no, these sorts of practices, supposed practices, deny individuals their freedom. So we see lots of examples how the same idea, freedom, is understood in completely different ways by this. Um, Families are another thing, right? Cults, destructive cults as they are often called, are a threat to families, Right, Because often people who join these groups, much like those who went to the Oneida community or to the Shakers, would leave their families. They would you know, terminate typical family relationships, whether uh, parent and child, spouse, siblings, and the new religious movement would become their new family in place of their biological family. Right, So this is another reason that the anti-cult movement um, sort of was able to portray these groups as um, a particular threat, uh, uh, particularly with this long-standing notion in U.S. history that the family is sort of the core social unit of the entire nation, and a strong nation requires strong families. Um, They also talk about cults as being a threat to the nation because many of these groups that they called cults, sort of emerged in the context of the anti-war movement. Um, And even here in Southern California, that is, they had sort of a peace-loving tilt to them. Um, They had sort of an economic socialism or communism sort of orientation, not not in a political sense, but they shared resources. They were communes. Again, like a lot of those 19th century groups that, that we looked at. But in the context of the Cold War... And the evil communists in China in the Soviet Union who were atheists and not capitalists, right? Some of these groups seem like they acted more like that than they did American values. And, and we saw that in Jonestown, right? I mean, Jim Jones in the People's Temple, he increase, increasingly advocates this socialist, even communist perspective and talks about the possibility perhaps even of relocating to the Soviet Union. Okay, uh, the anti-cult movement picks up on the charismatic leader, but that the leaders are not only charismatic, but they're, they're crazy. They're psychologically unstable, and this makes them dangerous, right? And in, if they can combine mind control, brainwashing, and they're crazy in the way that they lead and manipulate people, this is obviously a big uh, danger that we should uh, be worried about, afraid of. And so they lift up this sort of triad of characteristics, especially the crazy leader, the brainwashed members, and the tendency towards violence. Um, Initially, that tendency towards violence, the Manson family, 
Um, uh, again, uh, here in California um, is the first example of that. But then in 1978, with the tragedy of the People's Temple in Jonestown and the mass murder-suicide there, this becomes another example of how cults are violent, right? And remember that homogenizing uniformity kind of thing where the characteristic of one group becomes applied to all, right? Jonestown particularly reinforces that notion of, of being dangerous uh, and, and violent. Uh, the anti-cult movement uh, creates a whole sort of network of professionals. Deprogrammers are one group. It's not really a profession that you train for. It's just sort of a self-appointed thing. But there were a set, a handful of academics, of lawyers, of doctors, who all sort of confirmed particularly this mind control and brainwashing framework and the craziness of leaders. It was a very small set of academics, physicians, and attorneys, um, and they show up over and over, but they were constantly invoked and relied upon by the anti-cult movement to reinforce these notions of crazy leaders and um, brainwashed uh, members. Um, Okay. Um, So that's a very extended sort of reflection on the word cult and the way the anti-cult network leverages it. Um, So let me turn back to you and reflecting back on our early conversations and what was going on. Um, Over and against that popular conception of cult, are there alternative definitions that we might think about that don't necessarily follow that path? Are there uh, any other ways that cults might be thought of inside or Outside of popular culture? Any um, Stark and Bainbridge? Re- uh, yeah. I was just thinking that they could be thought of as like the early stages of religion. Yeah, yeah, great. So they could be thought of as the early stages of religion, right? Because that's, that's the first meaning of the word cult, right? It, it was, it meant worship. That's, that's not a judgmental or value-laden term, right? It's just a description of something, right? So that's, that's one way that's sort of a neutral way to think of it. Can you, can you think of others or others that we have encountered? That's imported or innovative in nature. Okay, a movement that is imported or innovative in nature. Where are we getting that? Where did we learn about that? Yeah, from Rodney Stark and Williamson Bainbridge, a sociologist of religion, right, whose definition we studied. Um, and it's not perfect, um, but they try to frame it, right, um, in a way that has often been used to describe cults in a neutral way. They're new religious movements. They're new. So in, in that way... Every religion starts as a cult because at one point it was new. And it's just a way to describe that, right? Um, and so in, in, in this sociological perspective, right, they are defining a cult as one kind of new religious movement where the ideas or the practices are either entirely new um, or they are new to the context where they take place, right? And then they mention sect as another type of new movement 
And that's different from a cult because it's a breakaway, right? It breaks away from an existing tradition in an effort to try to reform that. So, so here we have in the early 70s, um, sociologists offering um, alternative understandings of what a cult might be. All right, question for you. How come we academics have not been successful in winning the battle over the meaning of the word cult? Why, why, do you, why is it so hard to overcome or challenge the, the broad descriptions that so characterize popular culture? Yeah, yeah I, I think it's very much an issue of can you get the toothpaste back in the tube after <laughs> society has viewed cults as negative for so long and then academics try and kind of define it in, at least to the layperson, sort of dry perspectives. So I, I Wait, think that's, that's dry language? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, these are not terms that we normally use, right? Academics aren't exactly charismatic leaders, Right? And charismatic presence. Yeah, but, but the toothpaste thing is a great example, right? I mean, the cat out of the bag or the camel's nose under the tent, right? It's just you can't undo this, right? Um, and so in some ways, we're, we're stuck with what we have. And that, that begs the question of what to do, but we can circle back around to that at, at the end. Um, but it is, it is the reality that, that we live with. Um, and so one of the things, of course, that uh, uh, some academics, uh, scholars of religion, have done is to propose a new term, right? Rather than trying to redeem the word cult itself, and say, no, it doesn't really mean that. If you dig down deep, it means this. Is to say, let's give a whole new term. And so we've encountered, and you hear me using quite a bit, the term new religious movement, right? Which really leans towards that new understanding of it. But uh, as of yet, at least, doesn't carry all the negative connotations that the word cult does. Okay. Um, all right. Well, why... You know, thinking about why is it that, that it doesn't work. Uh, just a few images, you know, in, in popular culture, in, 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 in magazines, in newspapers, in TV dramas, right? This notion of, of brainwashing and mind control continues to come up over and over and over, right? Almost every, you know, procedural, uh, drama, legal series on television has had at least one episode about someone who succumbs to a charismatic leader in their mind control. So it reinforces this notion that it's, that it's a real thing. Um, and, and this sense, I, I love this image. It's an editorial cartoon from the late uh, 70s, or 1976. Um, you know, that almost um, the notion that there is this dangerous, pervasive threat that is cults, and it's the same, you know, threat that, say, drugs are, right? But, and notice what's threatened, right? It's the family, right? Concerned about family are what drives a lot of this. Um, but they're also what sort of contributes to the ultimate um, structural weakness of the anti-cult movement is that it really only in an organizational sense, that is, giving money, volunteering with time, spreading the word, only really draws in people who have directly been affected by this. And that is an infinitesimally small 
percentage of the nation. Um, um, so there, there is this, uh, this tension between the rhetoric um, and uh, what, what really happens. Um, but as we head in now towards um, uh, focusing on um, uh, Jonestown, um, or, sorry, of um, the Branch Davidians, um, uh, we want to think about how these ideas of what cult is play out, right? And how important the group that we talked about just before this, the People's Temple and Joseph's Hands, shapes that perspective, right? The anti-cult movement was sort of waning as we got into the late 1970s, partly because of these numbers, the groups that had seemed so threatening in the early 1970s seemed less so. And then Jonestown happened, um, you know, we just passed the anniversary of it last week. Um, it occurred in 1978, so what's that, 45 years ago? Um, and um, suddenly there was this horrific tragedy with over 900 people dead, and the anti-cult people said, see, we told you, they're dangerous, those cult groups. They're violent, those cult groups. Their leaders can get followers to do whatever the leader wants, no matter how crazy it seems. Right? And so you get this revival of this cult scare and this cult fear. And from that moment on, anytime someone uses the word cult, it's, it's shorthand for what happened at Jonestown. So by extension, as we've been talking about then, any group that has that label is in theory going to do what, the, what happened at Jonestown. Um, and so that is really the ethos, um, the framework of what is going on when we get to the Branch Davidians in 1993, right? That, that's the prevailing piece there. Um, all right, so time for me to rest my voice for a minute um, and ask you to think about, which is what I ask you to reflect on uh, for today, and particularly, how do we see this understanding of the word cult operating in the events that happened in Waco with the Branch Davidians in 1993, um, another anniversary that, that we've just passed. Well, I think it's really interesting because one thing I was thinking about, like, if Waco, <coughs> right, like, the, the ATF comes into Waco, get, like, gasses it, and drives tanks to the walls, and I was thinking, imagine if that happened at a church or a synagogue or a mosque instead, like, what the reaction to that would be, and, like, whatever, like, the world's reaction to that would be, and it would be such a massive, probably, response and an infringement on, like, First Amendment rights and your freedom of speech. But here it's kind of like silence and like almost seems like okay because they were labeled and deemed as a cult and dangerous, right? It doesn't happen anywhere else with any other, like if it did, it would be a huge massive response. But here it's more deemed as like acceptable just because they were labeled as a cult. Yeah, that, that's a great example that, that the, the lives of people who are in cults aren't valued the same as other lives, right? It's okay that... And, and it seems that there was, you know, a sense that if you could label this group a cult, people would be on board with the action that you took. And when you look at the media responses and, you know, interviews on TV and call-ins to radio shows during this 51-day standoff, there was a lot of that sort of sentiment, you know, go in, 
they're crazy. It doesn't matter. They deserve it. They earned it. It doesn't matter, right? But look, these are the people who were in there, right? These are real human beings. Are those lives that are worth less than the lives in a church or synagogue or mosque, right? But that's one of the things that the word cult does, um, and it very much was operating there, right? That it, that it sort of was at least tacit approval, both for the initial serving of that warrant on February 28th over gun violations with 76 armed people and cattle trucks full of, you know, full combat and riot gear, and then for the April 19th um, um, when the FBI went in um, and, and, and said that they were getting folks out. And that, that shaped all of that, right? And in fact, the word cult appears, right, in the affidavit that is initially submitted by the BATF, right, to, to, to a magistrate, to a judge, to get the warrant to go in. And they kept using the word cult as, as if somehow that word was relevant to a warrant about guns violations, right? But it shows the power of that. that they, it sort of uh, justified that. Okay, how else might we see the word cult operating um, in, in um, what is going on there? Um, well, I was, like, I was thinking more of like the negotiation part, right? Okay, yeah. Because like, at least with the FBI negotiator, they kind of labeled it or dismissed it as like Bible babble or whatever or nonsense, and that definitely could have been influenced by their notion of cult and they're thinking they're crazy and whatnot. Yes, to say a little bit more why, how, how would that lead to that conclusion then? Well, they would just, they would have this notion that they couldn't really, like, talk to him or, like, reason with him because of, like, because they thought they were a cult, right? So if, like, if you try to negotiate with someone without reason or because you think they're a cult, then it's obviously not going to work. Yeah, yeah, so you've got this crazy guy you're talking to, but you don't actually have to listen to what he's saying because you know he's crazy and that's all you need to know. So anything that he says is irrelevant to the goal, right? And the FBI goal is to get the people out, right? During, you know, after the, the standoff that happens on the initial raid on February 28th, that, that those next 51 days from the FBI perspective, we're all about getting the people inside out, and therefore, what Koresh said really didn't matter. He was just crazy, right? And even sort of the experts they brought in to evaluate him understood his language in the same way, right? That it was just crazy Bible babble. Now, what was it, what was it that he was doing? What do we know about what Koresh was talking about? Do you remember what what was he focused on in this time? Yeah. The book of Revelation, I believe. Like all of his like all of his language was from that. Yeah, he was focused on the book of Revelation. Right? He was interpreting a very small section of, of the book of Revelation. And that is what the negotiators and the psychiatrists and psychologists called Bible babble. Yeah, were you um, yeah, and it just it closed down all opportunity for that to say see the three experts as like a viable solution say more what what close it like the so cult leads to this term bible babble circulating amongst the fbi agents and the the media and that almost immediately closed down all effective avenues of using those people to reach him right yeah they and they didn't need people who knew what that bible babble was about right because 
because they were dealing with a crazy man, not, not a Bible scholar, right? Yeah, yeah, just wanted to be heard, right? So, so let's pause at this moment then and, and think about one, another piece of the anti-cult movement perspective is that the rise and the emergence of cults is a new and increasingly dangerous phenomenon, right? That there's something about the late 20th century that has made, this, made these groups more prolific and more dangerous than, than they'd ever been. Hogwash. There have been new religious movements as long as there have been people on earth, right? There, as we have seen this quarter, there have been a host of new religious movements in the United States, right? And even the Branch Davidians, what they were doing was not really new, right? So, you know, one of the things that we've done all quarter is talk about what's new and what's not new as a way to think critically and compare the groups we've looked at. So, what is not new about the Branch Davidians? What have we seen before in the Branch Davidians? Uh, I think the main thing that stands out is uh, David Koresh's foundation of pretty much interpreting scriptures of uh, all the way, like Martin Luther in the 16th century, Sola Scriptura, right? Yeah! <laughs> it's about as, as far back as you can go. Yeah, all right, my work here is done. Yeah, yeah, we have seen this notion going at least all the way back to Martin Luther in the Reformation of people interpreting scripture to, for themselves to see what it means, right? And what in particular is Koresh trying to figure out in his interpretation of Scripture? What is he curious about? What is he trying to, to discover here? Isn't it whether the apocalypse is happening? The fifth seal, right? Yeah, he's trying to figure out, is this the end of the world, right? In the book of Revelation, it talks about seven seals, and once all those seals are opened... That is the apocalypse in the end of the world. But the fifth seal is really the cusp of it happening. And David Koresh is trying to figure out if that's where we are. And that's exactly what he was doing when that initial raid took place, right? And if you recall, when we looked at that text in the book of Revelation, it says when the fifth seal is opened, right before the destruction of the world, a bunch of people are killed for their beliefs, Right? Branch Davidians were killed for belonging to that group on February 28th. That lined up pretty well, right? But Koresh wasn't sure because it didn't quite happen the way he expected. So he was trying to figure out if, in fact, this was the sign that it was the end of the world. All right. Have, have we seen groups looking and wondering about the end of the world before this quarter? Yeah. What, what, where else have we seen that? What other groups were interested in thinking about trying to figure out the end of the world? The Adventists were probably like the first facts that we looked at in multiple dates laid out. So, so we, had, we have seen um, Seventh-day Adventists, right? Um, which actually the Branch Davidians are a sect, right? A, a breakaway from Seventh-day Adventists, right? So they're, they're not new in any sense of the word. Right? I mean, this, this comes out of a long-standing American denomination in the Seventh-day Adventists. What are other groups about the end of the world that we've seen? We've also seen the Millerites with their belief uh, in millennialism, especially with the Great Disappointment. Yeah, so the Millerites in the 1840s were the first big group that we saw that was really focused on 
this belief that the end of the world was near and trying to figure out what that was. The Seventh-day Adventists actually emerge out of a group of Millerites. Um, any other groups that have focused on the end of the world? Latter-day Saints. Yeah, and actually, you know, I think we could go back to that list, and, and in some sense, almost every group in American religion has in some way or another looked towards a end of the world um, is going on. Jehovah's Witnesses were another group, right, that, that set a lot of dates of what's going on. Shakers and Oneidas were engaging in their behavior to help bring about the millennium. So the point being here, maybe I'm hitting this a little bit too hard and being pedantic, right, but the Branch Davidians did not fit this framework of a new and super dangerous group that hasn't been seen before, right? Virtually everything that the Branch Davidians had done, we've already seen in American religious history, whether it's groups that they derived from, like the Millerites and Seventh-day Adventists, or other millennial groups like Mormons and Shakers and Oneidas. All right, so that's just a sort of another framing here um, to, to challenge the, uh, the anti-cult perspective. Okay, uh, other ways that you have reflected that cult shapes the events that happened at Waco? Yeah. I think that the media um, really contributed to... Um, like the public view of the branch dividends, which can also influence, the, you know, the, the government and the federal law enforcement agencies that were involved in this, like what they believe about the group, because the media was kind of portraying them as a cult and um, in a very negative way, which kind of shaped the perception of the public. Okay, yeah, so the media plays a really big role here. Why do you think that is the case? Why? Why? I mean, so they're they're really good at promulgating this anti-cult perspective, this cult perspective, right? Why or how do they come to have that role here? Do you think? I think there's certainly some some value to be had in tracing all the way back to like Jonestown as well. Like if we think about the people who were leaders. In the response in 1993, a lot of those people were like early in their careers when Jonestown happened. So they kind of looked to that as like, this is a model on what on what not to do. And that even if it wasn't necessarily that explicit in their minds, it was certainly kind of like seared into their memory. And then like later exposure, it kind of just like builds sort of like a confirmation bias almost throughout their career. And then that's kind of where it culminated. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's a great point, particularly about the, the, the confirmation bias, because that's, that's one of the ways stereotypes work, isn't it? That we, we get these stereotypes, and then it, it, it functions like that focusing lens or something, and it's, you tend to see the things that reinforce that and to ignore the things that don't. Um, and so that's already at work. We see the Jonestown piece looming over there, right? Um, uh, newspapers and, and media in general love an atrocity tale or a morality tale. I, I mean, th- this is good news, right? Um, but the flip side of that is the anti-cult people, right? A- what actually provokes a lot of this action in Waco is that some anti-cult members, remember Mark Brayalt, um, who had been a former member, so that's one type of 
of, of anti-cult uh, advocate, is former member, um, and then some of the other anti-cult groups here, right? They, um, they want to get after the Branch Davidians for various reasons. Um, and so they rely on the media, right? They go to the media and say, you ought to look into what's happening here, right? So the anti-cult movement is very good at feeding the media that perspective. The media then offers that government. Re- it just becomes this reinforcing circle here, right? And, and information, sort of the same information is used and reported over and over again. Right, that article in the Waco Tribune actually borrowed very heavily from a, I think it was an Inside Edition Australia, expose piece that Mark Braille had really, you know, agitated for, there, and so you get this same cycle. Now, who are they not talking to? Who is the media not talking to in, in understanding cults and what happens at Waco? Yeah, they're not talking to the people that are actually inside there, right? Because this is another thing that cult does, right? It, it assumes that knowledge, and you don't have to talk to those people because you already know everything you need to know, and they're brainwashed or they're crazy, so they're not really a reliable source um, to go on, right? And the same thing with religious studies scholars, biblical scholars for that Bible babble, right? They're crazy, their mind control inside, so the perspective of what that religion is about is not relevant to, to, to what's going on. Okay, so, so the media, once again, um, uh, is, is very important here. Um, all right, uh, so we get this dynamic, right, in this cult and anti-cult perspective is the prevailing dynamic, and in the end, right, as we talked about, it provides the rationale for the ultimate destruction of the compound there in Waco, right? When the FBI decides to go in because Koresh was crazy and doing Bible babble and holding people there against their will, which they weren't, right? The FBI thought they were hostages, but they were in there waiting for the end of the world, right? So that nothing was going to change, right? And then added on to that, do you remember, there were reports of child abuse, right? And that that really fueled the ultimate decision to go in. Turns out the, Depart- the Texas Department of Child Welfare Services or whatever they, they, the proper name for that agency in Texas had not found sufficient information for that. But again, this is the way that the word cult plays in, right? It evokes those sorts of concerns too. So if there was a cult, it was not hard to believe Um, that that sort of thing might go on. Um, And so the FBI went in on April 19th, uh, 76 Branch Davidians, including over 20 children, um, uh, died um, in in the fires um, that that resulted in, I think, 11 people survived, came, came out alive. Now, the other piece that informed this in this cult language, again, is the specter of Jonestown looming over what's going on, right? And because of that, to call it a cult was to know what was going to happen in the end. People were going to die, right? And it became a self-fulfilling prophecy, didn't it? Because they did. The question is, did they have to? 
Tabor and Gallagher make the claim that the use of the word cult is responsible for the deaths that happened at Waco. What do you think of that? Was the use of the word cult so powerful that it can be held responsible for the deaths that happened at Waco? I kind of agree. It goes back to what I was saying earlier. Is if they use a different terminology, if they called it like a church instead, I think the response there is less violent. Um, and I think, like again, the whole news media coverage takes a different spin on everything. Um, and so I think at the end of the day, the, like the BATF and the FBI take a different approach because they are worried about a kickback or response. But again, that cult kind of gives them that protection to do what they want, and everyone in the media and who's like consuming this media is going to be like, okay, they had to do what they had to do because it was a cult. But again, if you view it as a church or something, I think that takes away the violent options that the government like agencies have. Yeah, I mean, if you imagine replacing the word cult with church or synagogue in that affidavit for the original serving there, it, it probably would have made the judge... Absolutely refused to do it. Yeah, I mean, which is a real compelling um, uh, example of, of the power of that word. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we lost that. Um, replaced the word whole church. Um, I think it was hours long videos that Koresh had filmed of the children and families inside, basically like testimonials saying, like, I'm safe, I want to be here, I love David Koresh. And those, certainly, if it, it had been a church and not a cult, would not have been like blockaded from reaching public eyes and the media and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So words matter, right? Lang- language matters. Yeah. I think also that these anti-cult movements like deemed the part the followers as a kind of brainwashed individual. It made it a lot easier for to become this like hostage type situation, whereas it might not have actually fit all of this criteria to be a hostage situation, but since it was kind of deemed a cult, you saw Jonestown, and clearly people thought that any type of like government intervention with these movements would result in mass suicide. So they kind of just went into this knowing what the outcome was going to be. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it really does take away from the agency and individuality of the people there, right? So it again, it's this notion of... I can't understand why somebody made that choice, so something must be wrong with them, right, um, uh, in, in, in that, that distancing. All right, um, so when we think about the way that Jonestown informed what was going on here, I just want to point out, right, that, that what that did was stopped a lot of this exploration of what this movement was about, because in point of fact, the Branch Davidians and the People's Temples are very different, aren't they? What are, what are some of the ways that the Branch Davidians are different than what the People's Temple was like and what happened at Jonestown. Yeah. Um, the book talked about how the Branch Davidians weren't as isolated. Like They were in the real world. They worked outside, went to local schools, and like attended mainstream. It talked about like music clubs and restaurants. So they weren't this isolated group like Jones- Jonestown was, and that if um, authorities had known that, it could have really shaped the way they went about negotiations, but they were so focused on kind of what happened at Jonestown and, like, reflecting that onto the Branch Davidians that they didn't actually explore um, the reality of their group. 
Yeah, yeah. And even if they had talked to local law enforcement, right, they would have known that there were constant interactions and, and not the suspicions. And so the federal agencies actually went around the state and local ones, whereas the People's Temple is increasingly withdrawing eventually all the way down to South America in trying to create this isolated um, and separate community. Good. Other ways that you can think of that the Branch Davidians and in, in, in the People's Temples are not the same that would undermine that claim? Yeah. I think like the level of armament at Waco is a huge difference. Like stockpiling weapons, illegal or illegal, however they're purchased, and then over a million rounds of ammo on compound. I think it's makes draws a huge line between the two. Okay, so this this is something that really marks different and different than anything that we've seen before, right? Which, when you combine that with the language of cult and crazy and mind control contributed to people feeling nervous about what was going on, even though the actual violation was just paperwork, yeah. right, um, what, what they were doing there. Um, you know, Jonestown, uh, People's Temple, had practiced suicide, right, in these exercises called White Nights, where they had sometimes not known whether or not it was uh, laced with cyanide. Koresh insisted he suicide was not what they were about. Um, you're not going, you know, <coughs> excuse me, and Waco was not on anybody's radar before that BATF warrant was served in February, right? I mean, and it never would be. It still wouldn't be if it weren't for those events. Whereas Jonestown was uh, increasingly in explicit conflict with the surrounding community. Um, you know, even Koresh is very different than Jones. He, he, he's not compl- claiming to be Jesus or God, just a guy who's anointed to read the Bible in insightful ways, right? Koresh is working explicitly within a Christian framework and contained by the biblical text in what it says. Jim Jones moves well beyond that to critique the Bible and Christianity and say it's a false religion. Um, So there's a lot of of difference between the two, right, that really break down this notion that what happened at Jonestown should be the driving expectation of what would happen at Waco. Um, but that's not the way it played out, is it? And so this, this cult framework, this confidence in the interpretation that that meant that they were going to kill themselves, right, in fact motivates this government action um, that in the end results in the death of, of over 70 branch Davidians. Okay, so uh, as, as we wrap up here, let's, let's think a little bit uh, about the consequences of, of what happens here. In, in the immediate aftermath in, in 1993 and 1994, much like happened with Jonestown, that anti-cult perspective sort of gets a boost, right? Because in the end, it was like, see, it happened again. Right? That's what cults do. They are violent, they are destructive, um, and they need to be stopped. Right? But of course, what that narrative didn't do was press further into that con- comparison between Jonestown and the Davidians and the way in which they were, in fact, very different groups and that that cult stereotype didn't apply at least uh, in, in the same sort of way. Um, you see an uptick in efforts to hold legislative hearings and pass laws again to try to restrict cults. Again, not successful, um, 
largely because people realize that's crossing a line in terms of, of, of the free exercise of religion, um, which, which is sort of this foundational principle uh, in the United States. Um, uh, so, um, Bill Clinton, uh, who was re- elected president just, just before this happened, uh, the day after uh, the raid in uh, April that ended in death, said that he, uh, Janet Reno, the attorney general, had offered to submit her resignation because of what happened. And he said, there's no way I'm accepting her, accepting her resignation. This is my um, summary of his words in a direct quotation, uh, because of a bunch of crazy people committing mass suicide. Right. So even at the very top, that anti-cult perspective was operating. Um, in the end, uh, the government was cleared in, in, in multiple sets of hearings of any wrongdoing, both uh, in 1995 in a series of hearings and then a special counsel report that came out about 2000 or 2001. The government was cleared of wrongdoing. Uh, Eleven surviving members were charged uh, in connection uh, with the events at Waco, um, all 11 were uh, acquitted of conspiracy charges, but I think seven were in fact commit, uh, convicted of other crimes, including weapons violations and voluntary manslaughter. They were given, uh, most of the people were given like 40 year sentences. Um, uh, but in 2000, the judge reduced their sentences to 15 years. So by 2006 or 2007, uh, all of those people. Uh, were out of jail. Um, the Oklahoma City bombing. Is that familiar to some of you? That happens on the second anniversary of the uh, FBI assault on the Branch Davidian compound. And uh, the perpetrator of this said it was in direct response to what had happened in the Branch Davidians, right? Um, so, so the consequences of this event are uh, uh, long-term, and this is the, the memorial that now exists uh, in, in Oklahoma City that opened in 2000 um, in, uh, in, in memory of, of that event. Now, um, it does seem to me, um, in, in, in conclusion now, that... This ended up being a turning point, right? Because things in the end went so wrong in Waco. Um, because unlike what happened in Jonestown, it does seem that this could have been prevented. That there were intentional decisions that people made that at least contributed to the likelihood that this would end in a tragedy. And because of that, there was an openness to exploring other or a wider data set for understanding groups in this situation. And that maybe the closed circle of media and anti-cult informants did not provide the fullest picture to humanize and to understand the particularities, the individuals that were a part of these movements. And so... uh, not long after what happened in Waco, the largest anti-cult organization, the Cult Awareness Network, can, in fact, went bankrupt. Not as a direct result of what happened in Waco, but their 
uh, role as the sole authority on cults and being able to shape the cult narrative had been seriously compromised as people reflected on what happened there. So institutionally, there are um, less organizations advocating an anti-cult perspective today, but here's the caution, right? A lot of those same sentiments exist, just translated into a different key. That is, that other organizations, religious and not, are still often described in the same sort of terms that attempt to dehumanize, that attempt to other, to attempt to excuse the need to actually understand the beliefs, practices, and particularly the individuals that are part of a community. And so I think the warning still exists for us that when we hear the word cult, we need to raise a red flag and say, what do you mean by that? What are you using that word to do? And what are the implications and consequences of how that word and its use or those lines of thinking play out to affect real human beings? Um, so that is my hope for you that in this class that it's given us the ability to think a little bit more critically about the way that word is used and the way that new religious movements are part of a long and ongoing history um, that have shaped the world that we've lived in. So thank you very much, and we will gather to reflect on those sorts of things uh, one more time for a final class. Thanks for listening to this week's Lectures in History podcast. To find even more history content, visit c-span.org slash ahtv.